0: everyone. I'm Vicki Basilega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientists Section here at ASHP, and thank you for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional program from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice with the world's largest gathering of pharmacists host of many types of infections that persons who inject drugs could come in contact with. But for the purposes of today, we are going to be talking specifically about bacterial infections. Which bacterial infections are we talking about? Well, it kind of makes sense that because patients are injecting through their skin, it's more skin infections. Cellulitis, skin abscesses, non-pressure ulcers are about 50% of the infections that are seen. If patients don't seek care in a relative amount of time, this may progress to deeper infections. They may present with septicemia or endocarditis or osteomyelitis as well. Skin infections by and large are the most prevalent. A needle exchange program, there was an interview conducted with persons who inject drugs and 70% said that they've had a skin infection in their lifetime. And 12 to 35% said that they currently have a skin infection today. Skin infections are also the most common reason that persons who inject drugs are presented to the ED and subsequently admitted. If patients are admitted to the hospital and have a history of injection drug use, 24% of them have an inpatient stay of at least 30 days. Now, this is all infections, not just skin infections. But if you want to decrease your length of stay, this is a prime population to target interventions on. So if you're not familiar, if a patient has an infection, they get sick enough, they present to the hospital, they get admitted, they receive usually IV antibiotics on the inpatient side, and then they're ready for discharge. We've talked about you know some of the coordination issues of discharging a regular patient on OPAP, but there are other logistical considerations when we're talking about discharging a patient with a history of injection drug use, regardless if we're talking about intravenous or oral medications. How often do we encounter this situation? Well, the vast majority of you raised your hand And that echoes what a survey of ID physicians said, that any given month, we have anywhere from five to 15 patients actively on our list with a history of injection drug use. The most frequent infections that they're treating are similar to the study that we showed, endocarditis, bone and joint infections, skin infections as well. Now what deviates is how frequently we are, or we were in 2018, offering OPAT services to patients who have a history of injection drug use. And this is shocking information because we're treating them suboptimally. The vast majority of physicians said that they rarely provide OPAT as an option, even if the patient is sober, no longer using. They never provide OPAT even if the patient is on maintenance medications. Oftentimes we are transferring patients to other facilities to complete their therapy or keeping them in-house to finish their IV therapy. We are never offering the patients to go home and come back every day to get their infusions in the clinic. And 42% back in 2018 were saying that occasionally they'll switch to oral therapy. 2018 was before POA-OVIVA, so I will venture out to say that this was suboptimal therapy at that time. We've progressed since then, we have had a lot of oral is just as good as IV therapy for a bunch of infections that are pertinent to our patient population, OVIVA for bone and joint, POET for endocarditis, a lot of retrospective gram-negative bloodstream infections, MRSA bloodstream infections. All of these studies showed that oral is just as good as IV, but there are caveats. Very few enrolled patients who have a history of injection drug use, the vast majority use rifampin for the gram-positive infections, many use linazolid as well. Or pharmacists, your antenna should be firing being, whoa, watch out, drug interactions. And for persons who have a history of injection drug use, this is a legitimate concern. Rifampin was used in a lot of these studies. Rifampin, promiscuous inducer. It will affect any and every SIP enzyme it comes across. Well, methadone and buprenorphine are medications for opioid use disorder. They are metabolized through those enzyme pathways. And many studies show that when used in combination, rifampin will decrease the levels of these and we can put patients into withdrawal. So not a good situation. I recommend against the use of rifampin in these patients. Additionally, linazolid. Now, I am the first one to say, go ahead and use linazolid with SSRIs. I am usually not worried about serotonin syndrome. Obviously, I do a little more evaluation before that blanket statement, but I pause when I come to a patient with a history of injection drug use, particularly to figure out what is their drug of choice? What drug are they injecting or using? If it's methamphetamine, fentanyl, or cocaine, I recommend against the use of linazolid. I think that those have a higher risk for serotonin syndrome or If the patient experiences some kind of adverse effect that's related to this, I don't want to break the trust that they've developed with either myself or my ID physician. So I tend to avoid using lineasolid in these patients if possible. Maybe you're sitting here saying, fine, OK, so just discharge a patient to a rehab. They can complete their IV therapy there. You said that the ID physicians are doing that already. Well, hold your horses because it is really hard to do this. A study out of Massachusetts looked at 219 patients with a history of injection drug use, 1600 referrals for those 200 patients to 285 facilities. Over 80% of them were rejected, a third were rejected for more than one reason, and one of the most common reasons for not accepting the patient to that rehab setting was because they were on medications for opioid use disorder. It's really hard to place these patients. In Massachusetts, we have two rehabs. They are state-run rehabs. Dare I say, they are not as good quality as some of the private rehabs, and patients may refuse to go there because they know the quality of care that they get, or if they're in recovery, they don't want to go because they say that you can access drugs there pretty easily and I don't want to be in that environment. So this probably isn't a good option for our patients with a history of injection drug use. What if you look at the data that we have available specifically in using OPAT in patients with a history of injection drug use? Look at their OPAT completion rate. Didn't I just tell you that this is the metric that we should be using for our OPAT programs? And look at this. This is all looking at patients who have a history of IV drug use. Their OPAT completion rate 70 to 100%. This is identical to patients who don't have a history of injection drug use. but. This is all retrospective data. These patients were cherry-picked to be enrolled in OPAT, so it's not as clear-cut as my slide is showing you, so maybe I shouldn't have used this slide. But the data is out there. You just need to know the details of what the data is actually saying. So I mentioned medications for opioid use disorder, and many of the OPAT studies that show good, successful outcomes in PWID incorporate the use of MOUD. A couple of studies at Brigham in Boston looked at whether maintenance or detoxification had any effect on OPAT completion or readmission, and what they found is that detox does not work. Maintenance is key. So you need to send a patient out on maintenance, buprenorphine or methadone, and they have much higher completion of OPAT, less lower 90-day readmission rates. Additionally, a bundling of services, multidisciplinary teams coming together. This study out of Seattle, they had a four-step algorithm. Patients who had a history of injection drug use, they had to be consulted by ID on the inpatient side, they had to be consulted by addiction on the inpatient side, case management had to be involved and agree, and the patient had to be discharged or enrolled in medications for opioid use disorder. Additionally, these patients were sent to a respite center, so kind of a housing or a halfway house where they were able to stay for the duration of their IV therapy. And they found that using this bundle of all four interventions plus the respite led to much higher cure rates at 90 days, additionally led to higher rates of retention in addiction care. The other thing that I like about this study is that they actually had a good mix of patients that were on stimulants as well. As you know, we don't really have medications for stimulant use, only for opioid use. So this study actually showed that this bundled intervention possibly could work for those patients as well. A pilot study from Brigham looking at using this multidisciplinary approach, resource intensive, to safely enroll patients with a history of injection drug use on OPAT. So the patient had to have a safe housing environment to go to, they had to be on medications for opioid use disorder, no aggressive behavior when they were on the inpatient side, had to come in for weekly in-person MOUD clinics had to come to CID for follow-up, and everybody in their multidisciplinary OPAT team had to agree the patient met criteria for enrollment. Lots of steps, lots of team players, but if they met all of these, they enrolled 20 patients in their pilot program, all 20 patients completed. So yes, it's doable, if you have these resources. I mentioned MOUD plays a big role in this, and there are multiple ways to get MOUD programs at your institution or in your work area, but I will say that one of the biggest barriers is this X waiver. So physicians and advanced practice providers have to do additional training, eight hours or 24 hours of training, so that you can have the privilege of prescribing buprenorphine. There are not many providers that do this, there are limitations on that, so patients are not receiving the medication that we know is so vital for their care and their survival. But the good news is that there is legislation that passed in the House, hopefully will pass in the Senate, enrolls a bunch of things, but also If this gets passed, they will eliminate the X waiver. If the X waiver is eliminated, that also may potentially open up the opportunity for pharmacists to prescribe, depending on whether or not they're recognized as providers as well. So call your Congress people and have them support this, please. And then I just wanna leave off with, what is our current OPAT team composition? We did a survey of OPAT pharmacists across the US, by and far physicians, pharmacists, and nurses are part of formal OPAT teams, but you see very few others, some admin, One person, I think, said that other people were involved. What's missing from this? Case management, addiction psych, social services as well. So with our current makeup, we can't do what some of the great studies I showed you are. So I just want to summarize by saying that infections, BWID are a major concern. When we are trying to discharge patients on antibiotics, there are other considerations that are involved. What drug interactions do they have? Where can we safely discharge them to? Can they access MOUD? Do we have respite centers that we can send them to, and that in order to have successful outcomes, we need these resource-intensive teams that the vast majority of our programs don't currently have in place.
1: touched on a lot of things that we all know to be true, and I think one of the things that I'll kind of reiterate here, which I find to be very sad, is this paper she had covered as well, and I have it in a little bit different order for a clear reason. This is a paper done by Allison Rappaport, and really I want to kind of start to highlight, and I want you to put yourself in the position of this patient. The only options that are available to you if you needed a course of IV therapy is either to complete your therapy in the hospital where you're at, so your length of stay will be prolonged for whatever time you have, or you get transfer to a facility, which oftentimes is not as nice potentially as the facility that you're in. In my state, usually there are swing bed facilities that are part of rural access hospitals. And so oftentimes patients are approached to go and they may not necessarily want to because they may not be in the direction of the patient's home. Culturally, people in Appalachia don't like to leave even the county that they're born in. A lot of the people I went to college with didn't like to even come to school one county over because their family wasn't very close and they would go home every weekend. So this is not an insignificant part of a discharge disposition is to think about where you're sending these patients. And I think what's even sadder is that we don't even offer patients a potential to go home or do other things, even if they've demonstrated sobriety. But again, I think that that problem we have is we lack consensus definitions on what so, so means. But I think it's a very powerful graph when you look at this patient population that oftentimes takes a long time to develop trust, but it's very easy to lose it. And this was recreated, actually, one of my colleagues, Dr. Laura Fanuki who heads the addiction medicine service that we partner with at the University of Kentucky, sent a a survey to members of the key teams, ID, surgery, cardiology, and asked them, you know, a list of questions, particularly around whether or not they would prescribe OPAT in patients with recent drug use. Of note, in the 41 respondents, 95% of them would give OPAT in a non-person who injects. I don't know about the 5% that said they wouldn't. <laughs> Maybe they had some bad experiences, but who knows? Because not every patient that doesn't, inject drugs is also not an optimal candidate either. But I think what's really interesting is the verbiage changed. If you had a history of injection drug use, they would rarely even consider it, right? Consider, not give, it's consider. That's what I say to the cable person when they come to my front door, when they say, would you like to switch your cable provider?" Well, I'll consider it, right? <laughs> and we all know how that is, right? It means you're not going to do it. And so I think that that's important. And even when you talk about changing that verbiage to a remote use, the consideration only goes up to about 80%. But there's no definition on what remote means. And that's kind of what I saw when we posed that question to you earlier in the talk, it's very subjective. And actually the literature is very subjective in terms of what that is. But what you can see actually in a lot of these patients is it may not necessarily be just the injection drug use. And I think that that's one of the things that oftentimes is a rate limiting step. And that needs to be, to Dr. Mahoney's point, a consideration to bring in these case management groups, these social workers, these other members of the team, because I can't fix homelessness. I can't fix a broken home and I think a lot of the things that drive this injection drug use or a consequence of it ultimately result in also not a great situation for OPAT prescription in these patients. But again, it's something that we can remedy with focus. Now, it may not be 100%, but it's something we can target because we have solutions for some of these problems. So where are we at now? And so again, I think when you look at discharge to home, you got to look really closely at what that means. It oftentimes means that they're discharged to go to a daily infusion center. Well, in Eastern Kentucky, I can tell you we don't have those in every street corner. What that means for me is I have to have a non-oncology infusion center that their EDs open on the weekends and will accept a patient to get their Saturday and Sunday infusions. We do not have the breadth of infusion centers that a major metropolitan center does. And I think that that's a key difference in some of our more rural states. So we don't have a lot of discharge dispositions to allow patients to go home. And I think we have a significant gap in terms of what our providers know and are willing to do. And we've got to close that gap with focused education and increase their comfort level with prescription of opad or at least identify patients in whom injection drug use is present and target solutions to that problem because again when you look at across the board only one in 10 providers actually said that their institution had comprehensive services for these patients. So again, we're not even treating the problem when you ask an ID provider, will you provide this person OPAT? We're not even getting at the source of why this patient has an infection anyway. So in ID, the principal role is source control. Well, this is the source control for these patients is getting at this addiction. And only 3% of the respondents had buprenorphine prescribing waivers. So that's a huge area where we can close the gap. And if you think your guidelines are going to be helpful. So again, we often look to guidelines for at least a starting point. They're really not. They kind of say, well, you should do it on a case by case basis. Well, what does that really mean? I say that, you know, to people when I don't know the answer. So, you know, and when we look at the British society and I really want to commend them, they've really pioneered OPAT. They'll actually have verbiage in there that says, you know, six months to a year, may be a contraindication or that's their kind of de facto term, but I don't know that that's based on any consensus definition of what recent means. But ultimately where do they go? This is some slides that I adapted from some education here. We have a myriad of places to send them, but the patients may not be willing to go to them. So we have swing beds, we have acute care setting, we also have residential addiction treatment centers. Now I will tell you in Kentucky until about a year ago we had one, and that was about an hour and a half west of where most of my patients come to care at my hospital, where my patients where I already had to drive two hours to get to my hospital. So again, it's not very close. And oftentimes patients may not be willing to participate in rehabilitation at that present time. Again, we've got to get addiction medicine on the case to kind of earn their trust and get the patient ready to come out of their addiction. We can discharge them on Copat. Oftentimes we have patients that are self-directed. It's a new term for the AMA. But ultimately one of the things that we should be mindful of is, and I'll talk about this in a moment. we drive. A lot of this right our behaviors towards this patient population may drive a a considerable number of these self-directed discharge and again as dr mahoney said there's also opat plus or minus medications for opioid use disorder but when we look about what we're we currently doing we're actually spending a lot of money to do that if we try to figure out novel ways to transition the majority of the care based on patient preference into the outpatient setting and that's kind of where i want to kind of go with the direction of the future but how do we do that? Well, we have to increase education of not only our providers, but also the PWIDs themselves. Because there are potential pitfalls to putting a PICC line in these patients, but there's also potential benefits. But you'll actually be shocked to know what the patient perceptions are on the placement of a PICC. Some of them think it's gonna make their IV drugs too strong. Some of them think it's a terrible idea. Others are too scared in and of themselves to put it in because they know it might be a trigger. Right? We have to start to understand these patients. We also have to look at our care models. Our care models for a long time and even our hospital policies are probably going to bias not only our opinions, but our treatment courses towards these patients and we need to standardize the practice as best we can with the available evidence or extrapolate it in this patient because you oftentimes find as Dr. Mahoney said not a lot of these studies included a significant number of patients who inject drugs or if they did it was highlighting a particular route such as discharging them to a skilled nursing facility or something like that and then again one of the things you saw is we got to increase the access to medications for opioid use disorder whether or not that's with addiction medicine or psychiatry but what you're seeing is a renaissance in their emergence in this and the infectious diseases community. So again, how do we rethink that care model? Totally agree with Dr. Mahoney. We got to bundle this, but look at your own institutions. How many of you have an addiction medicine team? It might be an addiction medicine person. What happens when that person's off? It's very difficult. And then again, there may be more patients than that service can see. And I think that that's a key thing. How many of you have social work support for that service? Again, if you don't have a person, chances are you don't have the social worker to support that team. I consider ourselves to be a very large OPAT team and we do not have a dedicated case manager to help us with these difficult patient discharges. We rely on the pretty much overwhelmed case management on the inpatient primary services to do that. And they're oftentimes covering two or three services and trying to get all those patients out. And then again, we don't incorporate peer support, health coaching. This is something that's very commonly done. And again, that's something that is not being done more frequently, and I think it's resulted in better outcomes. And ultimately, it's a team-based approach. It's not just the OPAT team, it's the OPAT team plus the ID team, plus the addiction team, plus internal medicine and even surgery, cardiology, and whomever the patient care is. So it really takes a village. What we really have to do is start using these screening tools. And my hospital does this, I think, relatively well. We are a very active addiction service. A lot of our internal medicine hospitalists will use this and we will look at screening for opioid use disorder. They'll get addiction medicine consulted. Then ultimately try to get that patient linked up with long-term management and control of other comorbidities. Ultimately, we've got to educate that patient population. I think what we need to also realize is when they come in, it's a complete 180 change from what we're telling them on the outpatient side, where we're talking about harm reduction strategies we're talking about clean needle exchanges. Because when I'm talking about all of this stuff, and I have some examples here, they don't have access to any of this stuff when they come in the hospital. Why? Because the hospital policy says you can't do any of that. You're bad, right? And then you've got the nurses, they're reporting them. The patients feel scrutinized. It leads to conflict. Ultimately, what does that do? It increases your self-directed AMA discharge rates, right? Because the patients feel watched. Ultimately, they may have you know, potentially comorbid psychological issues that need to be addressed as well. So if we're not being careful in how we approach and develop trust in these patients, we're ultimately leading to the problems that we're talking about, right? frequently leaving and things like that, which makes them not eligible for OPAD and other opportunities to potentially get them out of the hospital faster. And this is something I wanna take a moment to kind of talk about, cause this is something our hospital has championed in the past. And this is pairing opioid use disorder treatment with OPAD. And so this is something we try to do, is really kind of go after dispelling the rumors about the PIC. So the placement of a PIC. What you'll find if you look at the literature, there's no difference in infection rates. They're often superimposable when you look at complication rates in patients with known substance use disorder and injection drug use with those without. It's really a myth. Now, there are occasionally where you look at a specific patient population, you could find more, but ultimately when you look at the broader picture, it's really similar. And then ultimately what we consider, you know, use, they're using in the hospital. Anybody who's worked in an urban hospital, like I remember in my former life in Detroit, these patients use, their friends are bringing it in. It's not us keeping them in a more controlled environment doesn't stop any of this. And in fact, it probably promotes more of it because they feel isolated. They wanna feel comfortable. They're probably not having their pain managed appropriately if you don't have, you know, addiction medicine, palliative care there. Because remember these patients are self-medicating oftentimes. And then again, one of the things we look at, even discharging them with a PIC doesn't increase the risk of infection. There's a really nice paper in 2020 that demonstrated this. But what it also demonstrated, if you look at the devils in the details and I see one of my residents in the crowd, and I often tell them that, look at stuff in the articles, because you'll find things that you didn't think that you were looking for. In that same paper, only 30 to 40% of all the groups ever got an addiction medicine consult, right? That's terrible. When we talk about talking about treating this patient as a whole, we're doing a disservice, because if we're not consulting the people that would truly help the source of these infections, we're ultimately never going to stop them. And so, kind of as I talked about, This patient population often very frequently reports dehumanizing, if not biased treatment by the healthcare workers, whether it's the physicians, nursing staff, or whatever. And similarly, the staff often report mixed, if not biased opinions of the patient population as well, which are formulated based on their own experiences or cultural beliefs. But I think it also leads to us having more problems in this patient population because they'll ultimately not come when they need to. As Dr. Romney says, one out of four patients may have an infection when you talk to them. Well, they're not going to seek care for that if they think the person that's going to take care of them isn't going to treat them as a human being, or at least as somebody that can manage their own health care. In the University of Kentucky, this was a pilot study they did where they enrolled 10 patients in each arm to pair usual care versus the pairing of opioid use medication, buprenorphine with OPAT. And what they found was pretty promising results. It reduced length of stay by about three weeks compared to the usual care arm. Patients demonstrated very high adherence to their OPAT treatment, and they actually had lower rates of positive urine drug screens when compared to patients in the usual care group. Now, remember, these are patients who stayed in the hospital. They had positive drug screens for drugs they weren't supposed to be on in the hospital. And then ultimately, they didn't report a desire to inject because they were being appropriately managed for their addiction. So this has ultimately led to a follow-up study. We're in the midst of doing that, where we're trying to enroll 45 patients in each arm, and we're actively enrolling these patients right now. We're educating them similar to what we do in every single patient that goes out on OPAT. They get educated on their pick line, their family members or supportive group gets educated on how to maintain it and clean the pick line, and they are monitored more frequently than our typical OPAT patient. In this iteration of the study, we're doing twice a week labs, but you will find very frequently. Touches on these patients much more so than your typical OPAP patient, and we've had much success with that model. Now, the other thing, and I kind of put it after that because, again, it's not in the same vein, is going home, it's going to an addiction treatment facility. Again, I kind of mentioned I don't really have these, but this was a nice paper that actually showed uh, really good success in discharging these patients to a residential addiction treatment center that did not have skilled nursing to do pick line dressing changes, which is what we have to do currently in the state of Kentucky. We have to have nursing at the facility, and actually the University of Kentucky has cultivated relationships with one or two of these residential addiction treatment centers and actually shared nursing policies. We've educated those nursing staff to be comfortable with pick lines and to be comfortable with infusion devices, and we've sent patients beginning most recently within the last year to a more proximal center. You can see return on your investment with that because you can reduce costs and generate revenue by getting more patients into the hospital versus having that bed taken up by a potential person who injects now the partial oral therapies I'm going to spend just a couple minutes on that because again similar to what we talked about before if you're gonna do this it needs to be more standardized we got to monitor these patients because what was tend to happen in this patient population and specifically you were probably discharging them and they weren't having a follow-up appointment you just gave them a prescription for an oral medication and then they left particularly if they had a self-directed discharge but if you read the details very closely what probably keeping these patients out of the hospital is not the prescription although that plays a huge role it's the care because a lot of the drug studies that look at that also have a component of longitudinal monitoring and care coordination that goes on with self-directed discharge patients so i want to highlight that because oftentimes the devil's in the details but these drugs that we employ they're not benign they're going to be associated with toxicities and we need to be mindful of that and develop a strategy and the other thing i want to tell you is if you take caring for this patient please know again they're going to need more touches they're going to be high they're going to be increased users of after hours calls they're going to need heavy case management care coordination they oftentimes don't have the same resources, particularly if they've lost jobs or homes as a result of their addiction. So again, they are going to have increased needs from a typical OPAT patient. And then as Dr. Mahoney said, we too struggle with skilled nursing facilities to discharge these patients. And actually what I will tell you as a more rural state, we don't have as many of these facilities to begin with. We're also discharging these patients really far away from their home, which is often a barrier. They don't want to go to these facilities because they're one far away from home. They're probably not as nice, but also the facilities don't take them for the same reasons that Dr. Mahoney said said and so what we need to do is cultivate these relationships and get rid of these barriers to discharge these patients or particularly the ones that are willing to go to these places well how are we going to do all that because everything that I just said costs money so you're going to have to hustle for it I guess but I think one of the things that we talked about is you can do that when you demonstrate improvements in patient throughput. If we're getting these patients out, you can get other paying patients in. And so we need to model that. We need to show that the return on investment is worth the time and effort. And I think that even just a very small number of patients actually results in significant revenue generation for any institution if you're just looking at it in a different way. And so again, it's not just cost avoidance for an antibiotic. If you can get a patient three or four weeks out from their stop date to a swing bed or to home or to somewhere, how much money could you make on the back end if you got another paying patient in? Because I guarantee you most of your hospitals aren't generating negative revenue with each patient. You're actually getting some profit. And if you look at that and model that in a specific way, you'll probably get a little bit more support in terms of FTEs if you just ask for it. Just to kind of wrap that up, these patients have very, very serious infections. And oftentimes, they need long-term IV and therapy. But I think the biggest thing that we need to do is we have to get at the source of these infections. And that means we have to expand what we're going after from a targeted intervention to include treatment of the addiction, itself, because if we don't, they're going to be right back in the hospital, probably with a reinfection of the same disease site, if not a new site. But also we need to take a moment to say, how can we expand our services with the resources that we have and continue to grow to target these patients? Because I can tell you that if you have a large number like my facility does, it's not an insignificant amount of your inpatient volume. And so if you can free those patients up and have those discharge dispositions for them, they'll be happier, or at least you'll get them one step closer to home versus them being stuck in a hospital bed for a longer period your time and also we can start to rethink our own biases towards these patients and engage our provider and care groups to kind of rethink and also reapproach this patient population in a different way
0: So, not really a rebuttal because I completely agree with all the data that was presented, but instead going to kind of switch gears and say, okay, if we can't solve the problem of treating these infections, then maybe we should prevent them or do a better job of preventing them from the get-go. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about in the next couple of slides are taken from this phenomenal review article written two years ago by Alyssa Peckham, freely accessible if you have any of these patients in your practice please download it because as someone who knows nothing about injection drug use personally this taught me a lot and it is shocking to read some of these things but being able to have these frank conversations with patients I think is important so in terms of harm reduction I think you can kind of lay it out into three different areas so one is having access to sterile injection equipment the other is improving injection technique and then the third is other infection prevention methods in terms of sterile injection equipment Ryan kind of showed this on a different slide before four, but the first is your needles. Don't share needles because that can transfer infections that way. Use needles once. Don't blunt the ends. And have needle exchange programs. Have free needle exchange programs so that they can get these clean, sharp needles from a reputable source. Selecting the appropriate needle length and gauge is important because you don't want it to be too long or too large because that could damage the vein. You can overshoot. You can have other badness occur that way. And then having these sterile injection kits. They are not that expensive to make provide if you have an id clinic if you have an addiction clinic if you have an ed you can have these available for patients no judgment just provide them single use filters sterile water using the appropriate acid so ascorbic or citric acid having alcohol swabs and then tourniquets available and her paper goes into so much detail as to why these are important and what exactly it prevents In terms of injection technique, it depends on where your patient prefers to inject. Are they using intravenous, intramuscular, or subcutaneous? Based on what their preferred route is, there are preferred injection sites. For IV, we prefer the arms, then the hands, legs, feet, groin, and neck. That is our order of preference. For intramuscular, the buttocks, thighs, or upper arms. And for sub-Q, upper, lower arms, and legs as well. Counsel the patients to avoid licking the needles. Patient may lick the needle to check for any birth. but by doing that, they might introduce mouth pathogens, and then we have other infections to worry about. Clean the area appropriately, use a tourniquet to register blood flow, and then use the same insertion angle that you insert and remove as well, and the angle will depend on what type of injection the patient prefers as well. And then lastly, infection prevention. We are pharmacists, vaccines, bread and butter. In addition to age-appropriate vaccines, there are additional vaccines that patients who have a history of injection drug use should be offered. Tetanus makes sure the up to date with their tetanus every five years. And then hepatitis A and B, and there are some phenomenal ED-HEP-A vaccine programs that are geared specifically towards patients with a history of injection drug use. Talk to your patient and offer them HIV PrEP. Tenofovir TDF and Entracitamine has studies showing that it is effective in patients who have a history of injection drug use. Additionally, offer appropriate STI screenings, in particular if there is any exchange of sex for drugs or money. We already talked about needle exchange and disposal programs. And then additionally, both Ryan and I talked about how important, how vital access to medication for opioid use disorder is, additionally, how difficult it is to access these programs. So if we can pass legislation that makes it easier, expands the pool of providers that are able to prescribe these medications, we can prevent these infections that land the patient in the hospital, have the requirement for long-term oral or IV therapy, and then run into the issues that we have with discharging coordination for these patients.
1: So, kind of as I said before, really what we're looking at is frankly a failure of source control and I think the biggest thing we can do is target the injection drug use itself. And I think the things that we can implement at our own institutions is really work with our teams to not necessarily rewrite them ourselves, but I think we need to start to question how our institutions can and do approach this patient population. If we do so, we'll engage them more in care. I think if you talk to some of the patients and this will become more clear when you look at some comments, they actually akin our healthcare system to the criminal justice system. It's the same way that they get talked to by police or their parole officers. They get looked at with the same scrutiny and they get reported to. They're not allowed to make a mistake. And so I think we need to be cognizant of that when we're talking about this. And again, these are things that I learned over time. I mean, I can remember having a completely different experience when I was a resident, but again, I think times have changed. We know that this is no longer acceptable and I think it's time for action. The other thing is we need to, similar to pharmacy residency training call that I heard when I was a resident many years ago, we need to increase addiction medicine services, addiction medicine pharmacists. I think, you know, when you look at the number of drugs, I mean, there may not be as many, but these patients are very complicated. They need to be managed with potentially psychiatry. This is a subspecialty and a subdiscipline that I think warrants an increase in training sites and integration into healthcare systems. And I think that that's a very important step forward that we can make. And I think Dr. Mahoney is absolutely correct. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you look at implementations of such services in areas, including Kentucky, what you see after the implementation of those is a reduction in transmissible diseases and particularly bacterial diseases. They saw that in Kentucky with infections, post injection drug use. Now, again, some of these can be viral, but you can also see reductions in bacterial because again, you're caring for yourself as a user in a more sanitary fashion versus reusing materials, because that's all you have. And I think that that's a very important thing to consider we can do better at educating the users because even if they're not willing to stop, they can be safer about how they're going to use it if they're going to continue to do so. But ultimately it takes a team. This, I adapted this slide for a no thing, but I added stuff because again, to target this patient population, you're gonna need more services. You're gonna need more help. You're gonna need those addiction medicine people. You're gonna have to have buy-in from surgery, cardiology, internal medicine, addiction medicine. And then again, you're gonna have to go back to kind of what we talked about before. You're bridging the transitions of care, which is oftentimes an area we're trying to get better at as an institution because it's a lot of providers and even pharmacists are really good at acute care transitions into the outpatient setting. i don't know what goes on in the clinic i hear that a lot i don't know what you guys do over there well i know it's reflected in like what i get on the other side of the street and so i think that it's important we got to learn how best to transition these patients and all patients across into the ambulatory setting because ultimately that will reduce readmissions it'll improve adherence and will improve outcomes from that respect This was a really nice paper and I'm going to give kudos to Monica because she told me about it. Then I put it on my slides, but I think the key thing is that this was a really nice paper that was hot off the press, so to speak, and they really interviewed everybody involved in this process. I want you, while I'm talking, to kind of look at the little pink or the purple boxes on the right-hand side, because these are different people's verbalizations and written experiences about being involved in the healthcare system and the care of these patients, whether you're a patient, provider, nurse, and by nurse, they have a normal floor nurse, they have pick nurses, and I think one of of the things is it's a myriad of experiences, a lot of bias though. And I think it's very important that what we perceive may not be what the patient perceives. And again, remember they have a disease that they're struggling with. It's an affliction like others. And again, they are struggling with it and other problems in their own ways. And oftentimes they may lack the support systems that we have. If we have a problem with our job, we may go home. We can maybe vent for a minute and then we're fine. We have our kids and our family, but these patients may come from broken homes. And so they may not have that same support system. And oftentimes that may drive a lot of that. And so ultimately you need to think, well, what do they know about their disease state and how can we help? And this is actually a very powerful paper, in my opinion, and I think it was one that kind of opened my eyes to a lot of how our coworkers may see this patient group or they may interact with them on a day-to-day basis. And again, one of the things is you can see a complete 180 from very biased descriptions from particularly physicians to some that are like, yeah, it's a disease, you know, I'm going to treat them, you know, like any other, if, you know, we got to give them a chance to fail, right? And, you know, we don't keep, you know, diabetic patients who don't take their insulin in the hospital for their full course of antimicrobial therapy, we discharge them to home, right? And so I think that that's an important dissimilarity that we are posing upon this patient group when we can just do better at how we provide care to them at the present time. And so I would like to leave you all with this question, and I think ultimately we'll figure out that we just got to change how we believe and how our teams interact with this patient. But are we a little bit biased, right? And I think, you know, my eyes have been open over the course of my last 15-year career to this patient population. It was one that I didn't know when I was a third year in pharmacy school, but you came to know over the course of your day-to-day life. But I think we should look very closely at ourselves and then our healthcare systems ultimately to tackle this very difficult-to-treat patient group.
0: Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more episodes from the 2022 ASHP mid Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basilega from ASHP Official, and thank you for all you do for your patients.